This is an ad for a stale Jaffa cake. Hey, do you ever get a midday hunger, but your self-hatred won't allow you to get away with eating a fresh snack? Look no further. Why not eat a stale Jaffa cake? Everyone knows you don't deserve to be happy, which is why your diet should be restricted to items that are past their expiration date. Independent studies that we don't legally have to reference show that 93% of people who bit into a stale Jaffa cake made a noise like, ugh. So what are you waiting for? Chomp down on some stale citrus now. Welcome to the Meditations for the Anxious Mind podcast. I'm Frankie, and I'll be your spirit guide on this journey. If you've been enjoying the podcast so far, please consider contributing to my Patreon page at Meditations for the Anxious Mind. Today we have Senator Lynn Ruan joining us on the podcast. We talk about mental health, addiction, prison reform, and hash. Namaste. experience coming in on the taxi yeah it was i used one of those taxi apps yeah. and uh what, whatever happened there uh, i could see the rating of the driver you know at the start and it was a low rating uh, but i was late and the first fella cancelled on me i was like okay i'm just gonna go with it but you know what's weird about those ratings is i had a preconceived opinion of this person before mm-hmm. i even met him and then like he stepped but then in fairness like i'm coming from the m50 northbound and he brought me through Kilmainham <laughs> to get here like so i i think he was trying to rip me so uh, <laughs> uh i know <laughs> that taxi driver he knows where i live well, i better you not be careful intervene, like and say why I are said, you I said, where are we going the m50 he's like oh no no this way's quicker this way's quicker i was like yeah. but at that point it's like you know there was bad traffic on the m50 but it's like we're gonna argue over a fiver so i did <laughs> and i got out and, <laughs> and I slashed his tires but <laughs> that's why i don't have a broadcast or an ad on this on this podcast talking about slashing tires in the first five minutes but um yeah brilliant having you on lynn um lynn ruan ruan oh my god i'm so sorry people struggle with my name right and yeah. to me it's like it's so simple there's not even yeah. many syllables in it like but <laughs> even like people who i've grown up with right they automatically put the Lynn and the Rowan together and say, yeah. Luan? No, Lynn. <laughs> and I'm like, we're literally friends. It's like two. a sister of the Lewis, the Luan or something. <laughs> the Luan. <laughs> like, I'm like, you literally know me my entire life and you cannot say my name. Like, I, I wouldn't simple. mind, but I was gone. I was all morning. I was like, okay, it's Lynn Ruan. It's Lynn Ruan. Don't say Ruan. And then that got into my head. And I was like, In America, they say Ruan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Ruan. I must be American in a past yeah. life or yeah. something. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, so tell us a bit. Like you, I mean, I, I don't want to tell your story. Yeah for you but like you've done so much even in the last well like forever really since you were 15 but like um you're, you've become an author mm. uh you know even you've you're you're a mother and and your daughter is a famous celebrity you know she is. Uh, and uh you know it's amazing and then you know all the work you've done in the shannon uh passing bills you know and the drug you're looking looking at the drug reform and changing policies and you're your life has really done a, I was going to say a 360, but if you do a 360, you're actually back in the same place. So 180. <laughs> <laughs> Although if we went the full 360, like those earlier years were pretty fun as well. Like, so yeah, yeah. I won't complain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We might actually go after this. We'll see what happens. <laughs> but um, so what was, you know, you grew up in Killinarden and Tala. What was that like? It was, it was, I suppose it's a mixed bag, right? So, you know, 
and and you don't know any like I wouldn't go be anywhere else so it's like this paradox it's like you know you can talk about all the stuff that you experience that's wrong but it's like but that's that's who I am and that's where I'm from and that's me people like you know so it's like so growing up like I lived in a little cul-de-sac in Kildare Estate, you know and it was the 80s and the 90s so you're playing leading hide and seek and kick the can and IRA or whatever else you're playing <laughs> battering each other on the street um, but so there was there's so much fun and wholesomeness I suppose to my memories of childhood but then obviously in, in, in a community that's kind of uh, uh, resource poor you obviously then encounter lots of other other stuff as well. So, and then if you had a personality like mine, like I was, I, I love a trill. Like I love, I, I'm like, I can see risk and then I still go towards mm. it. Like, do you know what I mean? Like I can assess it and then ignore it. <laughs> and still keep going. <laughs> it's a like, good skill though. You know, but it's, it's so, it's like, you know, lots of people in my estate will grow up. I think if you talk to anyone, people will give different versions of what the estate was like growing up because people engage in life in a different way. So just because I've had one experience, like my next door neighbours kind of go, when the fuck was Lynn doing all of that? Like, where was I? Like, how did I miss that? So it's like, it's mad how people's perceptions and experiences of the one place can differ. But for me, it went from somewhere that was kind of full of fun to somewhere that just had a lot of kind of death. And death, I talk about death a lot when I speak about growing up because um, I think it's quite unusual actually the level of debt that I was exposed to outside of my family system. So my family system was quite safe. Um, you know, there was no addiction within the home. There was no crime within the home. And there would have been quite a high level of naivety to any of that in the home. So it would have taken a while for my parents to really go, what's going on? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So my dad, I think my dad had his first drink when he was 42. And uh, he played League of Ireland football and he, you know, he was, he was like Mr. Moderation, like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like everything in, in moderation and even betting, like, you know, like 50p on a bet, like on the Grand National. And he always tried to instill this in us. And then I was just extreme, do you know what I mean? <laughs> and it was like anything that, that, that my family endured, I brought into the home. And I think if you grow up in a home that's quite safe, it's like a home has, doesn't have a great impact completely on a child when the institution of the environment, like the, the, the bigness of Kilnard and Talla is, is, is strong in terms of like you then listening to your peers rather than mm. your parents. So for me, there was lots of great memories, but then we, I lost a lot of friends very young, very quickly to um, that kind of risky behaviour that I was talking about. Like, so everything from car crashes to, um, you know, trying to escape from prison and and, 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 and being impaled on a tree mm. um, to falling off a balcony when trying to climb from one window to another to overdoses to suicide, you know, and road traffic accidents. And it was just like, there was just lots, there was just lots of it, you know, and it happened within our... Uh, exact group like so it wasn't even spread out across all the generations there was like a group of us growing up at a certain time that seemed to be just getting absolutely whacked over with lots of trauma very very mm. quick so that kind of formed a lot of my younger years and I really had uh, this idea of morality then that's quite warped when you look back but I, how could I not think how could I think any differently at the time as only a child but it was like I need to just do everything because I'm going to die very soon so in my head, there wasn't an older age. There wasn't anything. It was just like go full on into life 
do everything that life presents to you, whether it's drugs, whether it's crime, you know, whatever fun is going on, just and then when 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 communities or groups within communities experience a lot, they don't feel like anyone else outside of the group understands. So they 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 come together even closer and tighter. So you become really close to your friends because you don't think well they don't, like you don't think your parents understand what you've just witnessed or what you've been through or and there's like a, a loyalty that develops and a a sense of togetherness and drug use is it facilitated that togetherness as well because it was fun to be out taking e and having raves and all of that kind of stuff and once we were doing that the misery didn't exist so like that kind of binds you you know what I mean so and in a sense which is quite controversial for me now I'm starting to really explore the thoughts that for some of us in them moments not for the people that went on to have their lives completely dictated by uh, drugs and addiction but a lot of us that maybe in some of those moments drugs actually allowed us to live and survive yeah. because we didn't have the capacity at such a young age for our nervous systems and our brains to actually comprehend what was going on. And now I'm looking and going, actually, drugs in a way softened the blow of some of the stuff that I was experiencing. And that's why I talk about self-medication a lot, because you're trying to just put a buffer between you and all the shit that you've just seen, you know, and in a sense maybe that saved me in the, in one sense, but I can say that because I managed to step out of the chaoticness of it, you yeah. know? Yeah, well, it, it makes it makes total sense the way you were describing it there. Yeah. And like um, having that shared kind of trauma that you had with your friends and only you kind of understood it. Mm. Um, and it does like, you know, what else are you going to do at that age? When you're, it's 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 kind of it's sad though, isn't it? When you hear like how many other kids who grow up in like disadvantaged areas kind of think like, you know that they're gonna die soon, and and so they have to squeeze everything in. Like that's if you're if you're growing up, and that's what you see, that's that's the most rational kind of way to look yeah. at it. So I think, you know, um, of all the things that you could have done, like you said, you got out of it, but it really it probably pushed you to the next level, you know, to where you were meant to be. And uh, I I read a bit of your book as well, and yeah. I I was so I was actually I, I have a bond to pick with you here <laughs> because uh, I had a. I, I I downloaded Kindle. I was looking for my Kindle like all yeah. day, and uh, I I downloaded the app. I didn't know you could get it on your phone, and uh, I was I was going Lin Ruan or <laughs> oh my god <laughs> Lin Ruan, um, and uh, I saw your book People Like Me, um, and um, it wouldn't let it would I couldn't find a buy button, so I had to read the preview, and I was absolutely loving it. And I and I wonder you, why that is. I don't but, know. You yeah, have to talk you, to Gil. That's yeah. not my phone. <laughs> Pick with me. Yeah, yeah. Talk to the publisher. Yeah, yeah, but you you ended it on a cliffhanger. I was like, oh, Lynn, what, was what are you doing? It was uh, so it was just at the point where, like, you would have found out like that your dad was a, a different age yeah. than your mom yeah. said he was. Yeah, and uh, you were like, I think you said something like it was the the next the next stage changed my life, and then it was finished, and I was like. Oh, Oh, oh my god. god! This is like a Netflix. Oh no, not to trivialize it, but it was like you know a cliffhanger. It's like oh my god, you're leaving me on this. Oh, I have to send you a copy. <laughs> I, oh no, I'm just gonna buy one. It's grand. I'm gonna actually buy one after this. But uh, yeah, I, I want to support you. Oh god! But, so my dad was actually 189. I'm only. Making- <laughs> <laughs> he was in dog gears or something. <laughs> but um, it was brilliant. And what I loved about it as well was. You have like the way the way you write is very personal. You're a good mm. writer. I try and write how I speak. Yeah, yeah. And so. and and it was uh, 
it was funny that you know when you said you were 10 years old you wanted to be a writer and isn't it funny how it yeah. kind of comes back full circle yeah it's mad to look back on that now because a part of me is like is it just coincidence right but then it's like you know well there was obviously something that pulled me towards writing because I could have refused those opportunities as they came up and kind of went oh no that's not for me or I don't want to write my book but obviously there was a a child in me going here's your chance like you know you can be a writer and for me in my writing what's important is um like if I'm writing a news article it's a bit different because the framing of it but if I'm writing creatively I try and ensure it's my dialect Mm. so I try not to grammatically get everything correct because I'm writing it I'm not writing it for like you know, of course, academics and professionals can understand it. But for me, where sociologists get it wrong and writers get it wrong, if you're talking about a particular community and that community can't recognize themselves in your writing, you're doing it wrong. Mm. Do you know, you can't talk about a particular community and then that community not be able to access what the fuck you're saying. Yeah. So for me, it's important to just to write with that flow like I'm texting someone. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, just just write how I speak. Yeah, and, 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 and it's very much like in your voice. And, yeah. you know, you said about sociologists and how many... You know, classical sociologists grow up in those areas yeah, anyway, you none, know. Yeah. And and uh like and I say this as somebody who is studying sociology as well. Very good. You know, and um and, and I can I, I I'd imagine you probably studied it as well and, yeah. and it's very much kinda evident from the way you look at the world and you know your policies on on drug reform mm-hmm. or your stance I should say on drug reform um and uh you know I'd love I'd love to talk to you a bit about that cuz yeah. I was looking back on you know and obviously it's for all drugs but in the case of like cannabis um I, I was I was I was thinking back like I remember being in fourth year and uh, my teacher was you know talking about oh we'll we'll legalize in five years time or decriminalize and just thinking on that was sort of 16 or 26 now and we're actually not like you know and, and there's been people like you yeah. and uh you know other people trying to kind of push the envelope mm-hmm. but uh there's there always seems to be some sort of opposition and and you know, one thing that I noticed, uh, you know, like it was, it was very. Uh, a lot of people saw it was uh, you, you speaking on the joint committee for drug reform. Um, but what you're saying, it doesn't matter where you come from, who you are. Everybody knows that it, it makes rational sense. <laughs> but what what is it about? Why is there so much? Uh, why is there so much kind of uh, pushback? Do you think? Uh, so like. Right, so I'll try and map it out to give as much information as possible, right? So so one of the reasons I go for all drugs is because for me, it's not about the substance, it's about people, right? So for me, it's trying to push people's ideas that so if you begin to create a hierarchy of substance use, you're actually creating classes drugs because hash weed are used so much more across uh, political divides, across different postcodes, where the likes of a heroin and crack epidemic disproportionately affect working class communities. So if you if you create a law that only looks at cannabis, and I believe in the regulation of cannabis, but I'm not allowing that that's not going to be what I push because I'm like, that's, it's, not, it's not about that. You're not actually helping people who need help the most if you're going to criminalise poor communities because if you only legalize cannabis it's any other drug that's even though 
it can be used in other communities, but the concentration of it is used in in, in communities that have um, less resources or less access to education, less access to the employment market, all of that. So for me, it's about decriminalizing the person. Um, obviously we need, so there's decriminalization um, for, I suppose anyone that's listening that doesn't know. So does legalization and decriminalization are two different things. Um, sometimes it's hard to watch politicians because they, comp- they they constantly confuse the two and I don't know whether it's a, it's a tactic. Mm. So they're confusing the two to purposely confuse the public or else they've, they've just been too lazy to actually understand and differentiate between the two. So Ireland is not fully at the... The, the, the stage yet where they're going to be willing to talk about legalisation maybe of cannabis but not of uh, all drugs right but they definitely feel that there's room to probably legalise cannabis but then decriminalise all other uh, substance use so you're not decriminalising the substance you're decriminalising the possession and use of the substance so then basically what you're saying is that the substance is still illegal but the person is not a criminal for using it you know, so you might have a situation where a guard can still take the substance, but then you're told to go on your way or whatever. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So there's all these different models that we can follow. There's the Portuguese model, which Ireland is resistant to because um, by my understanding, what happened is, right, so it, in Ireland, we have a common common law country and in Portugal, it's civil law, which means so civil powers to give sanctions at a more localised level. We don't have that capacity in Ireland, but that doesn't mean we don't have the capacity to decriminalise, we can do it in different ways. So we can look at public order offences. Maybe we can put something in there because that that might be where it is. But what's coming from, what came from, there was a committee set up. So I tabled my bill in 2016 to decriminalise all drugs. From that, the minister asked me to hold off on a vote on that bill so that uh, they could do a public consultation to get the public's kind of feel on what they think of decriminalisation. 22,000 submissions from Ireland came into that. The highest ever rate of a public consultation. Highest ever. They think people don't understand and know this issue. Like, again, it's politicians are way behind the public kind of vibe of, at, at the time. Like, mm-hmm. And uh, so then they set up a working group to go through those submissions. And then they brought in key stakeholders to... Uh, I also... Uh, presented to that committee, but they had the likes of lots of, like the likes of uh, the London School of Economics and stuff have done amazing stuff on this. All the evidence points towards we need to decriminalise, the Drugs Act needs reform and it's bad, it's bad, it doesn't work, right? But what came from that committee kind of um, from some of its members, what they what they communicated with some of us was that actually the issue was that the guards didn't want to give up the ability to stop and search, mm. Right. So why do they want to stop and search? You should only want to stop and search if there's something weird going on. Not because some young flit in a hoodie has walked past you and you've been paroling Jobstown all day and you haven't stopped and searched anyone. Like it's not a game, stop and search, stop and search. It's like, mm. why Why are we stopping and searching? Right, because there's not a load of parole cars and guards cycling around Dublin 6 going, who are we going to stop and search today? <laughs> yeah. Right? So it's like, well, why are you there? Why is that community over-policed? And why are you stopping and searching them? You should only be stopping and searching people if there's a suspicion of illegal activity, not just because of how they look and where they're from and the fact that that's the, that's the community that you're policing. So 
the thing is they can still stop and search because they can still say they have a suspicion that the person is dealing and if they're not we'll then send them on their way mm. do you know what I mean so it's really it's watery it's so watery like and lots of other countries like Berlin and I'm visiting Oregon in August to see how they t- do things there I'm visiting Colorado um, I'm in communication with global networks to look at all the different models that exist everywhere so I'm I'm part of like a, a global effort to actually decriminalise drug policy. So when the whole world is coming together on something seriously, like it's like all the evidence, all the scientists, everyone is saying prohibition hasn't worked and it's never worked because in the 70s in Ireland when prohibition was brought in, there wasn't as bad of a drug problem as there is now. Mm. So if anything, prohibition has existed and under that we've had increase, 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 increase of drugs, drug use, criminality, all them things. So prohibition has never done a single thing ever. Mm. So there's no evidence There's no evidence for them to say we stand over this piece of legislation because it works. So they're standing over something that they don't understand. Maybe it's bigotry. Maybe it's lack of understanding. Maybe it's uh, about class. Maybe it's fear mongering as well. Like, you know, it's um, it's they've taken the narrative straight from like the war on drugs narrative from like Harry Anslinger and and and, um, Nixon and Reagan and all of those. Right. So we have a law in Ireland that criminalizes people because America wanted to introduce laws that criminalized people because they had a fear of inter- interracial relationships. So if you go back and study it and you even read, say, like Johan Harry's Chasing the Scream, he maps it out wonderfully, right, right from Billie Holiday on the jazz scene and how they came down hard on people that were like smoking marijuana because they didn't want um, white men having sex with black women and uh, having uh, mixed race babies and stuff. So we have a law in Ireland that is actually based on a racist America. And it grew and it grew and it grew and it grew. And that's what we're operating under here in Ireland. So when you go back on the dialogue in the chamber, when I've read, I've read, right, this is, this is where my life is at, right? (laughs) (laughs) I I have read debates from the Shannon and Dahl chamber right back to the Torties. Um, from the Poisonous uh, Substance Act, right? So before we had main drugs, stuff that was used in institutions and what they would have called mental asylums and stuff at the time. And I've tried to follow the thread of how it evolved and how it got to here, right? And the conversation in the chamber in the 70s when this act that we operate under uh, existed, they are saying stuff like... uh, this doesn't really seem like the right thing to do. Why would we put somebody in prison for their drug use? And then other politicians are going, yeah, uh, is it, uh, maybe we'll get as bad as America, is it? So it's like, <laughs> they're bringing a bill in. They, they, they don't know yeah. what they're on about. Like, do you yeah. know? So there was politicians standing up going, I'm not comfortable with this. Well, we wouldn't go into a man in a pub who's drinking whiskey because he drank too much, too much and t- taken him out and put him in. So the logic was there. They were all kind of going, what? But what happened was, um, there's a various books that you can read, but I think the most accessible one is Johan, Johan Harry for anyone that wants to kind of map out why we're here. But the single act, which was a UN treaty. So America basically went to the UN and started putting pressure for Uh, the United Nations to create a treaty where they would control drugs everywhere and America being the superpower that it was, trade being reliant on it, they basically, their fingerprints are all over the UN treaty that Ireland had to sign. So then Ireland stands in the chamber in the 70s and said, we have to uphold our UN obligations. That was it. That's why it passed because the UN said we had to have an act on prohibition but the Americans actually made that happen. So they controlled it completely on on the glo- on, on on a world scale, and then your politicians kind of 
still using them tropes from the 60s and 70s like gateway drugs there's no such thing as a gateway drug <laughs> yeah. right some people that smoke like I smoked hash um, I don't know if I'd be able for the weed now at the, this day and age now I'm like bring, bring back hash where's the hash this is a call out for anyone selling yeah. hash <laughs> <laughs> But uh, so like you, you can smoke like lots of people their first drug is hash right or weed um, some of them people may end up on harder drugs right but mm, thousands of them won't so is it true that most people's force into drug introduction to a drug is, is, is weed or hash yes right is it true that all of them will end up on something else no do you know what I mean? Like there's thousands and thousands of thousands of people in Ireland that have only ever smoked weed. They don't do anything else. Do you know what I mean? But it's like they try and make out that just because hash is the first drug you try, but that's the gateway. Soon mm-hmm. you've smoked a joint, that's it, you're in and you're fucked. Mm-hmm. And it's just not true. Like, Yeah, so I know most yeah. people I know who smoke weed, they don't do other drugs. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, and I think I think it's more so like what what's inside, like what, what it is in a person what they're looking for or what they're running away from a lot of the time mm. you know and, and a lot of people will progress to heroin but like you said it's not so much to do with the drug it's a lot of the time to do with your environment where you're from yeah. and uh, you know I, I know people who are just as addicted to drugs uh, from wherever like Clontarf or whatever but the drug they're taking is different than the drug someone will take in Sheriff Street but the exactly. difference is uh, you know the person from Clontarf they'll go to treatment and Sheriff Street they'll they might sober up in prison mm. so there is that kind of uh, thing and, and that, that brings me on to the next part like you you worked a lot in uh, drug and alcohol services what did that teach you about where you're at now? A lot I think um, a lot of the policies that I stand over now are very much informed from from my work as a community worker and then also my time as a drug user and as a young person in a working class community. And for me, I think I took lots of learnings from working in the addiction sector. And first of all, that nobody I work with is a criminal right now. Like some people go, but what if they rob a bank? (laughs) No, robbing a bank is against the law. Like you're a criminal. (laughs) Like it's not that you take drugs and then you are like... Nothing you ever do beyond that. Like someone actually wrote on me Instagram yesterday and I deleted it rather than responding to them. They said, uh, but what if you murder someone after taking a drug? No, you're cr- like, no, you will go to court for murdering someone. Like, will you stop making leaps here? Like, yeah. do you know what I mean? So first of all, it's about trying to get people to uncouple that in their minds, right? So uh, for me, I worked with people who had, were experiencing lots of negative outcomes from, um, I suppose what something that would have helped them in the beginning to feel better now obviously was a problem. It was interfering with their lives, their health, um, their ability to be able to access education, to be able to feel happiness in themselves. Um, but then there's other people that I learned that it's that diff- it's that thing of difference between drug use and drug abuse. And it's like, well, why do some people um, end up uh, in really kind of dire situations with addiction? And usually if you look back, there's points in times where there was trauma in their lives, where there was hardship and all that stuff existed before the drugs. But yet we keep focusing on the substance with people rather than on uh, where it originated from and the pain that someone feels inside them or whatever it is they're trying to escape and run away from. So for me, for a while, especially in the drug services in Bluebell, what I tried to do was stop talking about, I was the drug service that was trying to not talk about drugs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was kind of like, wait, what's she doing? What's that mad's I doing down there? And I was like, no, like if, especially at this amazing women's group and 
they developed the whole program with me and the biggest thing that they identified about how hard it was for them to leave drug use was the the void in their day so if you've spent 10 15 20 years um you get up in the morning you drop your kids to school um you go to you go to your clinic maybe you chat to your friends at the clinic you get your methadone and if you're still using in any shape or form maybe you're figuring out how to get the money for that and then you get it you set up paraphernalia da, 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 da. so it's constant you're using your critical thinking your reasoning your logic all the things we use in our everyday jobs people have to use that just to get by survive access drugs figure it out you know all that kind of stuff so if you just if someone becomes apps uh, begins to abstain then from drug use or enter recovery it's a very lonely space because you haven't built up a social network in a in a in a drug free space you only have the community in which that you've been operating in for 10 15 20 years throughout your addiction so it's like well, what do you do then for people to be able to fill that void, that gap in their day? So we developed a program that kind of just tried to fill those gaps. We called it filling a gap. And my drugs project was called Bag, which I always loved. <laughs> <laughs> it was like Bluebell Addiction Advisory Group. I was like, yeah, and I remember yeah, the board bag. saying, should we change that? And I'm like, no, we won't. Bag is perfect. Yeah. So we began to call the program Filling a Gap at Bag. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> We, the women, the women ta- uh, developed uh, a cookbook and we toured the cookbook all around the canals and we had this French guy, he, he died now, he was an alcoholic in a, in a past life and he lived in France and he was amazing, big, big character, but like worked in Michelin star restaurants and was every bit the French chef, like, you yeah. know, and he taught them how to, we made all these different recipes that were focused on healing parts of your body that addiction has probably, or addiction or um. Uh, you know sex work or abuse or whatever uh, has so we we researched all the ingredients so a lot of women said that their metabolism was really affected mm-hmm. from um, methadone use that kind of just slowed everything down so like we introduced different spices to help with that we looked at what would help their liver rejuvenate their hair their this and we toured it all over the canal community so Inchicore, Bluebell, Rialto we started doing parties. The women were being paid to do the parties. One of them set themselves up as the accountant of the group. The men were kind of getting a little bit jealous going, <laughs> what, the women yeah. are out there fucking yeah. running a business. So they started growing a lot of the veg in the side of the drugs project to um, to contribute to the to the to the food and it was like a little economy was grown and it was absolutely amazing and there was so much potential in it but there was very little unless they came to me because they wanted to speak about a particular struggle they were having with and uh, so they were all at different stages as well some of them were on methadone some of them were stable completely stable some of them are still maybe with benzo use other one or two crack users and so they were all at different various stages yeah. but we learned how to belly dance and we've done <laughs> t-shirt making and we learned how to make big uh you know them big designer cakes mm. like they made my young one Jordan like the, the pick a destiny from Tenacious oh, D oh yeah like, one of my um, favourite movies yeah of course <laughs> as well so like amazing stuff like yeah. you know and uh, there was very little talk of drugs and that started to get me thinking about what are we doing wrong here so like if you if you're a drug user and 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 services just keep wanting to talk to you about drugs all day you're like oh fucking going home we need to take drugs like do you know what I mean so for me it was about how do we begin to create services that are more holistic that are more about uh upskilling people developing people no matter what stage they're used they're at and never making it a requirement that they're drug free coming in the door Mm. do you know what I mean so um I, I took a lot of learning uh, from that 
which start to make me not look at the person as a drug user, just like just at the drug, just at the substance, but look at everything else in their lives. And then that would have led so much into, I suppose, my own development about See, before I would have been afraid of drug policy in a sense. I'm like, you know, because we were out, our, our community was so destroyed by drugs. So then I have to step outside of that and go, well, not every community, not dr- drug, it's not the, it's not the drug use that destroyed the communities. It was the conditions in which we lived in mm. that set the, the, the framework for people to then self-medicate in, you know. So for me, it was like trying to separate those two things and going, right, we need to look at inequality, poverty, lack of opportunity. Everyone wants to feel like they have a purpose in life. And if you're not able to access that purpose, sometimes people use drugs and that gives them a purpose sometimes. Um, so, yeah, so for me, it was about learning that this is about people. It's not about a substance and we need to look at it in its widest possible sense. Yeah, yeah. And I think uh, I think that's such a good way of looking at it with uh you know, the more holistic approach because it always baffled me about treatment centres. Like, <laughs> you know, the, you go in there on the first day, oh, you have to be a month sober. Like, if I could get a month sober, I wouldn't need the treatment <laughs> centre, you know? Like, it's just yeah. crazy. I used to wreck my head in homeless services because you'd be doing, like, an intake form on someone in a hostel and they'd be clearly under the influence and you'd be trying to get through it. Then a few days later, they're fucked out for being caught using in their bedroom. And I'm like... They were literally out ahead when we interviewed them for the bed. <laughs> what kind of fucking expectations are you yeah. setting to people? Like, you know, it's a homeless service. This yeah. is why people are home. Like, this is yeah. why this particular hostel existed. It was a low threshold hostel, mm. like for people who were in active addiction. Yeah. You know, so there's so many well-intended people working services, but that's all it is, is a well-intended but they don't actually, under, sometimes they're actually a little bit scared. Yeah. Like sometimes I think people have this saviour idea that they want to go into this community and they want to help and then they get there and they're like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> <laughs> What's going on? I, I actually had, um, I had Peter McVerry on last week yeah. actually speaking about homeless, um, like the homeless kind of problem and uh, he was talking about, uh, there's a bit of overlap in what, what you're both talking about because we were talking about decriminalisation oh, yeah. as well. He's a great and advocate as Yeah, well. he'd be an advocate of that. And I asked him about legalisation and you were speaking about methadone a minute ago and he kind of said something that I never really thought about. He was saying like... Um, He's he's not for legalization, but the only I, I don't know if I'm right here, Shan, just correct me if I'm wrong. But like uh, the the only version of legalization he would be for is if people who were drug users like would uh like put sign a form basically saying saying you're a drug user then you'd be able to get your drugs any drug like methadone but for free yeah. like on the step and that nearly made me want to start doing drugs again <laughs> <laughs> free no, so like what i'm in favor like eventually i think there is a conversation to be had on legalization because mm. what what baffles me is that politicians wants to constantly kind of wrap up all like put out all this fear about drug dealers big bad drug dealers they're everywhere right and it's not actually true like a lot of people are just selling and drugs in their communities keeping communities afloat more yeah. than the politicians are sometimes <laughs> do you know what I mean it's like well where do you think that soccer club got its uh, football kit <laughs> wasn't off use <laughs> do you know what I mean it's like <laughs> and it's like they don't understand that that economy exists right and that of course then there's violence and there's the kind of dark side of it but we can't keep pointing at that 
and then standing over prohibition. Because to legalise the market and regulate the market, if, the, if, if drug dealing exists because there's a black market and a niche for it, now it's like, for me, it's like, well, what do drug dealers do then, right? Because I'm kind of a little bit going, well, you're going to take away a, a livelihood for a lot of people. So what do you do for that group? Because they're not just going down the road and getting a job in fucking good bodies at the docks or something. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like they have a skill set. They're entrepreneurial. They understand the market. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they have all these skills. So it's like, how do you create, create an amnesty? Now, this is me massive wishful thinking, right? So you legalize drugs. Anybody that doesn't have like a murder charge, you uh, you begin to engage with people who've worked in the, in, in, in the drug dealing trade and you figure out if you can bring them into a legal market with the skill sets that they have. Do you know what I mean? And you actually uh, create an amnesty for anyone that sold drugs. You know, now it's, quite big thinking right it's not yeah. going to happen so that's me it'd be, it'd be nice though it's i think uh i think when there's money to be made if there's money to be yeah. made it's not going to be like you know the people who are in charge of that policy and i'm not you yeah. but you know people <laughs> who, who are looking to make money off it yeah. they're not going to want yeah. people who have been making money off it. you know they want it for themselves and i remember i think it was blind boy actually made a really interesting um said something interesting about legalization like if it does happen in this country um again I, this whole podcast has been made quoting other people and, <laughs> and butchering it but um i think he said something like uh, he wouldn't like to see a version of legalization where um you know loads of like multinational conglomerates money, come yeah. over because of the low corporation tax things like 12 yeah. percent and like uh, they come over and then they'll start making money setting up dispensaries and whatever it is you know uh like that would be the neoliberal kind of you know uh way of yeah. like that, and, and that's and, that's the fear isn't it yeah. because it's like if a government does move to regulate a market it really should then, if you want to end inequality and end poverty, well, then the market should be geared towards doing that. So any legalization of any market, then you should be, that that money should be ring-fenced straight into communities, straight into the education system, the youth sector, community development, all those areas that are trying to kind of uh, deal with the the effects of poverty and drug use. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So you would have to, like, it wouldn't be nice to think that it would just become this neoliberal exercise, which I probably, I probably, <laughs> probably, I probably will. will. Yeah. But in what uh, McFerry, what Peter said in relation to uh, then methadone, I don't know whether he mentioned then, so I'd be um, a big kind of advocate of heroin-assisted treatment. So not, methadone works well for lots of people. I think sometimes the problem is the care plans that are wrapped around people are constantly told they're not ready to come off methadone and it's from doctors who don't even know them that mm. just write the script put their head up barely look at their face and tell them that they, they, they are not ready and there's so many issues with how methadone is administered more so than methadone as a substance but there's a, a other countries that do heroin assisted treatment so you're actually giving people like clinical grade heroin rather than methadone and that's like you're giving that to a, like that's what probably McFerry was saying is that you're signing it that they're a drug user but you're giving them a grade of heroin rather than methadone and that's the treatment it's called heroin assisted treatment program so which is quite half. interesting yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah have two point out yeah and that's uh that's i think you know that would that would get rid of a lot of the fentanyl problem as well that's being laced in the heroin yeah you know so yeah. i think like there'd be a lot of benefits and you know, I've, I've heard of people taking methadone and taking it for years and they're, it's a matter of months before they're able to wean themselves off it properly. Yeah. Um, and well, so, a, lot, a lot of people go back on the gear. Yeah. 
like a lot of people stop taking methadone and go back on the gear to have a sickness from the gear rather than the methadone. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 God, it's, it's, uh, it doesn't seem like much of a choice, <laughs> no, does it? No, no. Yeah. And, uh, I, I have a friend actually, tell me if I don't, uh, if I don't ask you, um, he's studying <laughs> criminology, doing a master's in criminology. Yeah. And, uh, he was, he wanted me to ask you, um, so like in, I think it was in between the three counties allowed, made, and uh, I can't remember the other <laughs> one. Basically, there was only like one million euro last year given to drug and alcohol supports. Um, and why do you think within the government there's so little kind of will willpower there to uh, to give more money in their budget? For yeah, well, like, support? I mean, I worked in the drug services when they started completely decimating them during austerity. And like them, them communities uh, where drug services are needed were poor before austerity and even poorer after it. Do you know what I mean? So you're you're chopping into an already struggling community in a massive way and it has a massive impact. So since 2008, when I was in the drug sector, Drug services receive less money than they did pre-2008, yet the population has increased and the population of drug users have increased massively. And especially in counties then that are outside of Dublin, it's even harder because sometimes they start to look at funding in a population-based way, so based on population, rather than being able to actually increase the capacity of smaller count or counties that have maybe less drug use. Um, but it's going to keep growing anyway. But the thing is, they haven't actually increased across any services, uh, the drugs initiative for over 10 years. Like it just hasn't happened. Now, they've introduced new funding recently for like crack cocaine projects and stuff, mm. but they're one offs. Like they're not existing services that are it's needed. just a token kind of. Yeah. And yeah. it's hard to know why uh, they haven't increased the budget. Um, it's, you know, I think I think. We, we change ministers, right? We haven't had a strong minister. Aon O'Reardon done really well in his time in the ministry because he wasn't being led by the civil servants that have been there a long time that are protecting the space, that are probably a bit too conservative. So what we see, we see a government on the outside, but there's the invisible government on the inside that are calling many shots. And unless you're a strong minister that really cares about the issue, you'll just sit back and let the civil servants do this do what they what they always do which is mm. wrong yeah. I mean if you run for election and then you're given something as important as a ministry you should take that so seriously like do you know like we, first of all it's bad enough that we have ministers that don't understand the topic but then to have ministers that will gladly step aside from their job to allow civil servants uh, drive the agenda it means that it doesn't matter who's in government because that civil service remains the same and they're kind of holding on to what the, the what the drug services look like and they've attacked they've attacked services for years uh, if you're a vocal service like if you're if the HSC or say the, the department funds a drugs initiative or a, a drugs task force like say Tala or the canals or anywhere like that all of a sudden they think that you should never uh, criticise the government never criticise the departments and it's like if we keep bound down to that because we're afraid to not receive any more funding, we're doing a disservice to the communities that rely on us to make sure we hold people to account for not funding projects properly. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So I think there's a, there's a, there's, I think like that even the likes of Mead and all those other counties, I think it's about time we actually had to push back massively against government and demand better. Like, And I think it's happening because I can feel the sense of it. Like in 1996, when the Rabba report came out and drugs, 
task forces were set up, there was just a massive swell of public, like lack of patience now. And they just rallied. And obviously vigilantism came a little bit around there in the 90s and talent and stuff, which is not a thing I agreed with. Mm. But it did mean that the government had to act. But I think unless... Uh, all counties, regional task forces and urban task forces like Dublin, unless we begin to actually organise ourselves and not be afraid to hold ministers to account, uh, I don't think we're going to get that increase in funding. Yeah, we're all I afraid. A, I, I think that's like a, a thing where, you know, there'll be individuals like yourself who are willing to speak out and then... But but the way the way that the entire system is rigged, it's like you know, okay, well we're gonna cut your funding here. So it's like that. It's nearly that kind of you yeah. know, it's you're you're fucked if you do and you're fucked yeah. if you don't. Exactly. And and you mentioned not to go too off topic. You mentioned Aidan O'Reardon. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you're not gonna believe this. I actually when I was sixteen, I climbed Kilimanjaro and he was part of the group I was in. <laughs> <laughs> I swear to God. Uh, so. <laughs> yeah. I, I haven't spoke to him since but he <laughs> because seemed... of that did he yeah. off <laughs> and I haven't spoke to Aeon yeah, since yeah yeah I actually I haven't, haven't spoke to another him. human being since then <laughs> no but uh, no I actually I don't like to be honest with you, I don't even know any of his politics yeah. I just knew I knew he was a politician that was yeah. it yeah no you know, he's but... always been good on the on, on the drugs issue like I wouldn't yeah. um, I wouldn't be a Labour voter like but um, he has always been really really strong on the drugs issue and when he took up the ministry he only had it for about a year and a half two years but that's how we have the legislation for the safe injecting facilities yeah. that we're still trying to implement but he really pushed out like do you know what I mean but that we haven't really had like the minister uh, say Catherine Bourne then that came the first year I was in um there was like I mean I think there was evidence that it's like she was trying to learn the language of it and stuff but she had she she always had issues with task forces anyway like and lots of beef with them and mm. quite neoliberal and like I mean she kind of was more vocal on the issue than than, than Minister Fien has been but she 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 led the way for civil servants to start trying to clamp down on task forces having any sort of kind of ability to advocate and, uh, and and for them to have agency and decision making. So for the last 10 years, so say you can imagine like 10, 15 years ago, communities had the ability to make more decisions about where it got funded, how it was funded, what, you know, they more decision making. So then for the past 15 years in the community sector and addiction sector, they've, t they've slowly but surely started to drag all that ability to make decisions on a local level back into government and into departments so then decisions become centralised and communities who understand the issue and understand the communities have no ability to make decisions mm. you know and that's kind of what's happened for the last while yeah. especially through the last two ministers and uh, you know like I think just just looking at the way you know a, a lot of what you speak about you know with uh, how, how classism is involved in, in drugs and in addiction but also like just how people are criminalized in general mm. and uh you've been a big advocate on prison reform and um what was it that kind of made you well obviously like your, your own personal experience but what was um where, where is that where is that at for you now so my spent convictions legislation which so when so we can look at prison reform in terms of like we can say that we need more opportunities for people when they're in prison first of all right greater access to supports greater access to assessments in terms of educational needs uh, psychological needs emotional needs um, so if you if we say we have a rehabilitative system, right, but yet people don't have access to what they need for it to be a rehabilit re rehabilitative system, well, then we're only kind of 
we're only saying that that's what it is without actually filling it with what it needs do you know what I mean so yeah the schools and the prisons are great but it's like they don't always suit everyone do you know what I mean so there's literacy issues there's lots of trauma mm. so for me I think with, with, with men especially who've been in and out of the prison system people can think that they're presenting themselves as like oh god they're very aggressive or they just they don't want to know they don't. and it's like well that's not true right because we are becoming more and more aware of uh, adverse childhood experiences and the impact that they have and I think people think that when somebody has had trauma in their lives, that it's going to present itself in the world and as something palpable to the rest of society. When it's not, sometimes it's going to enter the world fucking running into the room on fire, screaming at you like, you know, and, and it, it, we can't keep saying that men are aggressive in the prison system while then also acknowledging that they've had childhood trauma because the childhood trauma is just presenting as a frustration that looks like aggression. But actually... Their, the, the, the ability to slow down, think, to self-regulate, all of that. Lots of that stuff they haven't developed yet and they haven't been given a safe space to develop that. They're just judged by how they appear in the room. Like if they people think, oh, a little bit scary. Or, like I, I'm in and out of prisons all the time. And when I was a kid, a lot of my childhood was spent visiting prisons it was like a day out on a Saturday up to St. Pat's and Leo Bordox used to be up beside the Jai there we yeah. used to like get the bus into Tallaght and uh, like I have this really this memory like where we'd be on the top of the bus smoking hash all the way in <laughs> and then you'd hold your joint briefly when you were going over the over the over the Dolphin House Bridge because all the tobacco would jump out if you didn't hold it tight and you were making it and then we went in and we'd be all it'd be 10 in the morning <laughs> and it was just like that was our day out on a Saturday sounds and great it was <laughs> and then we went and we'd go into Pat's and five or six of us could go up and we'd all take out one of our friends each like that's what it was like mm. you take out so and so I'll take out so and so you to, and that's it like we took them all out on visits and then we'd go and get Bordox on the way home and back home so my journey through like the prison system started there but what stood out to me at that time is I have a big box of letters at home from uh, all the lads uh, some of them are dead now uh, but some of them have done quite well but they've lots of restrictions on them because of charges and types of jobs that they can have but they've managed to stay away from say criminality and stuff and then some are still on heroin in and out of services that kind of thing and in and out of prison but in the letters what stood out to me in my 20s when I would read over them once was that all of them said, when I get out, I'm going to go back to school or when I get out, I'm going to get a job or when I get out, I'm not going to rob anymore because I need to say sorry to me, ma. And it was just these really like, like normal aspirations of young men that what they wanted to do when they get out. But then that didn't happen. So I said, well, what is that? Why is that, right? So the, the want and the aspiration is there, right? So it's not that young people are going, and I don't give a shit. When I get out, I'm going to run amok. That's not what they were saying. Mm. But people think that people are in there and they just want to get out to do the same thing again. When there's not, there's a real desire to do something different. But then you're met with the power of like your agency versus the environment in which you've grown up in. And all those aspirations that you had are a little bit harder when you're actually then in the space surrounded by all the things you are surrounded by before you went in. So I started to think about prison, about how can we how can we help that? Like, what does that look like? And um, spent convictions then came in and around 2016, we never had spent convictions law in Ireland. Then we brought in a very narrow, narrow spent convictions regime, which meant that anyone that had one conviction had to wait seven years for it to come off their record. Mm. And if you had more than one conviction, they would never come off your record. 
Like none of them would at all. None of them. Yeah. Who has one conviction now if they're she you get you get fucking nineteen in an hour, like <laughs> you know what I mean? For the one for the one event. Yeah, yeah. It's like you know those remember those ads for like live aid where it's like every three seconds <laughs> every three seconds is a new conviction. Yeah. yeah. yeah and yeah. then it's like so I was like, Well that doesn't make sense because we can't tell young people or any any age person when they're in the prison system to just get their head down, just do this course in the prison system, do this literacy course, do this computer course. Um, do this social science open learning that they do and stuff because it's going to change it's going to help you and then what when they get out nobody will actually employ them nobody will give them insurance county council might say no we're not housing them we trun them out before they went to prison for antisocial mm. behaviour so you're kind of like there's why no it? such thing as actual yeah. you know restitution exactly yeah, so yeah. it's like and so then we and then we give out about recidivism rates and it's like, well, we're the reason why there's recidivism rates on a societal level, because we don't create opportunities for people to succeed and we don't let people forget, you know, and we don't forgive quick enough. And, you know, if someone is saying, I want to do this course, I want to go to Trinity to be a social worker. And then we say, ah, no, because there's about three drug charges for you 15 years ago on your record. I was like, well, he's a pair for social worker in many communities yeah. because he's actually had an experience that's closer to many of the social workers that end up in communities. So it's like we're really getting in the way of people living their lives and being able to actually if I if I felt if I was in prison and I couldn't do what I wanted to do when I got out, how does that encourage me not to just stay in crime if mm. I can't travel, I can't do all these things. So we have to try and remove those barriers. Yeah. And so it, that it can oh, work. Sorry. No, go <laughs> ahead. No, no, it's just uh I, I wanted to ask you as well like about prison reform but about like I hear a lot of stories about the way guards can treat prisoners and mm. just treat people from disadvantaged areas mm. and like you know like I, I'd have friends from say I have a friend from the inner city and like he'd be walking with his little sister and they just search him like nearly every day yeah, and it's no reason yeah no reason at yeah. all and like you know he, he's not he doesn't do drugs he's not a big drink it's nothing like that like and even if he was and he, you know, they'd have no reason to. Yeah. Um. And um, it's just mad that, like, I think, uh, you know, and just thinking out loud, do you think guards should be given more kind of education on how, even like you said, sociology, like yeah. some sort of, uh, obviously the the willpower in the government isn't there or the money isn't there, but like in an ideal yeah. world, you know, like with uh, like like the amnesty and that, and you know, yeah. um, I think you know. Guards should be given more of an idea of where a lot of these people are coming from, what their totally. childhood was like. Because uh, I think as well, like to be honest, I think there should be more psychological screening to be a guard because some of them are yes. just bullies. Yes, not all of them. There's some yeah. great guards, yeah. but like you know, there is a lot. I of... think I think you're right. I think it's something I've been advocating for for years is the special specialty training of judges and stuff and people that work in the justice system, um, on unconscious bias. Now yeah. some of them, some of it is conscious bias. They know they're biased right and they don't care this is their view but sometimes there's an unconscious bias underneath it and people don't even realise that they've been conditioned to think a certain way about a certain type of people do you know what I mean it's like we go around with the fucking low rating taxi rap <laughs> low rating <laughs> yeah. uh, taxi yeah. taxi rating but we just go around with it because we're from somewhere or sound like something or look like something mm. and um, so there's a lot of bias there and uh, there is a lot of um, there's a lot of violence within the guards I mean I grew up um, and experienced that, for, like I experienced that firsthand. And um, when I look back now, like say when I was 13, I remember getting pulled out of um, a robbed car. Yes, wrong to be robbing a car, mm. right? I get that. Um, so it's not me trying to justify that. 
but how the guards dealt with me I was 13 I remember having Spice Girl boots on that's what was out at the time like platform boots that size <laughs> yeah. and I remember wearing them and laughing because I was like of course I'm trying to run away from guards in a pair of Spice Girl boots <laughs> like you know <laughs> like I can't not going to yeah. get very far like you know <laughs> trying to run down the road yeah you should have pla- taken them off hooking three four platforms <laughs> <laughs> and I remember he said stop or I'll shoot and I hadn't at that stage I hadn't experienced a guard with a gun before mm. Um, which then I would have we would have known them then as dicks so detectives and um, but I'd never been arrested by one before or encountered one with a gun before it was always just your your normal guards and I remember I laughed because I thought this is obscene yeah. <laughs> like what what do you mean you'll shoot like I'm a child running away from you like mm. I'm running away from you <laughs> I'm not going to cause you any harm like so I remember laughing because like even as a child I was very clued in you know when something was just absurd mm. I was like this is ridiculous and he caught me and he held on to me so I started trying to act as a dead to stop him catching my two pals one pal was well gone he was well used to running <laughs> but the other two pals were just ahead of me and uh, I was trying to pull him back a little bit anyway and he dragged me he had me by the hair and he dragged me into the garden and he the two the two um my two pals uh kind of rolled under like a bush and he kicked them over and i remember my friend another girl one was a boy and they were he was so violent to us and none of us were resisting we ran but as soon as we were caught we like we didn't resist we weren't rowdy we weren't anything we're getting dragged back and he battered us like he split my pal's head open with the gun and uh, just because like we were asking uh, for him to he had the cuffs on so tight that my pal was crying we were like the blood was all over we were nearly using his blood to try and loosen the, the cuffs on my other pal's hands and he I remember him asking her her name and she answered so say it was Mary right and she said Mary and he said I said what's your name and she was like Mary and he's like, I said, what's your fucking name? And I'm looking going, I'm so glad he asked her for a strike because now I can <laughs> figure out what the fuck's happening. Like. And she said, I said, it's Mary. <laughs> and he gave her this unmerciful backhander. Her head flung across the thing. We were holding her. I remember getting crying, so upset. And he said, what's your full name? And he was like, well, why didn't you just fucking say that at the start? Like, she's a child. Like they f- and, and, and my other poor pal, his... Um, he had a big chunk gone out of his head and all the blood was pouring all over us. And it was just like, I get that you have to arrest us. Like you found us in a rob car. Mm. Like that's understandable. None of us are protesting that. Like, but he, he was, he was, he was such a bully. Like he, yeah, he, evil, really. he battered us for no reason. Yeah. And the other guard didn't really say much. Um, like he bystanded and watched it, but he didn't, he didn't participate. And I always wondered, was he uncomfortable with what was happening in that moment? But was he afraid to say something? Is it just, uh, just whatever, like, you know, I'll just ignore what, like he, you know, I don't know what the dynamic was, but I just remember he did nothing. Mm. He never, I don't, I don't even remember. I know our memories of these things can be fuzzy, but I don't even think I remember him saying anything to us. Um, and then they arrested us and brought us to the guard station. But that's just one experience. I've many experience of being and hit by guards. And sometimes feel sick after that. Yeah, but like sometimes, sometimes yes, we were doing stuff that were wrong and it needed an intervention. Um, but other times we could be just walking down the street and there was one particular female guard at the time and I mean she'd just bleeding bounce out of her car nearly with excitement when she seen us to you know to batter us and my other pal. I remember I was writing my book and. 
I'm starting to question my memories of things because I'm like, when you get to a stage in your life where you're kind of removed from that level of violence, right? Now I still live in, in, in the same house I grew up in, right? So I haven't left my community, but them interactions are not a lot for me anymore. And I start to question going, that's all very extreme. Did I bleed really? Did I really witness all this? Did I really experience all this? So I started ringing pals that I knew featured in the different parts of the book. And I rang one and I said to him, uh, I actually sent him a message on Facebook. I didn't have his number. And I said, can I ask you a question? I said, I have a memory when we were getting chased by the guards one time up, up Dunamore Avenue. And they caught you and they had like the little the little car van they used to use for giving out the summonses. And I said, I have a memory of them chasing you and doing like that scene from American History X. Like, like they didn't bend down to put his teeth like that, but they mm. put his head on the path and they danced all over him. I said, am I like, did that happen? Like, and he's like, oh my God. He said, I can't believe you remember that. Mm. He says, yeah, that happened. Of course I fucking remember. Yeah. <laughs> he says, I can't believe you remember that. He said, and they fucked me in the back of the car. He says, uh, in the back of the car van, he said, and then they continued to destroy me. Like, yeah. and the thing is, like what always got me about it is mostly we were running away from them. Like we were never running at them with like sticks or battens or rocks or we were usually just running, running away. So like, it's not that we were being violent, mm. you know, like some of my memories of violence originates from the, the like, so the, sometimes we're seen as like violent communities, right? But actually a lot of our forced experience of real violence is sometimes at the hands of authority. Mm. So the authority introduced us to that level of violence, but yet we're the ones that are deemed violent. And I'm like, you fucking taught us. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, and for me, it's like, we also experience violence in many ways through drug policy, uh, through con- the, the way spent conviction regimes mm-hmm. are, structural violence, like poverty is violence. Like to, 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 like there's so many different uh, policies that I say they're violent. They're more violent than any guard even hitting me. Mm. Do you know what I mean? In how they actually uh, perpetuate uh, inequality and classism and racism and all those things. Do you know what I mean? So for me, it's like we might sometimes appear in the world. Young man might appear in the world in a prison as appearing as aggressive and violent. But to be honest, I think we need to shine a light back on the systems and go, well, actually, I feel the system is violent. Mm. You know, you don't have to swing a punch for it to be violent, you know? Yeah, well, it can be like restrictive and that's a violence in itself. And, uh, you know, like what's really interesting about you, Lynn, is you've kind of had two lives, uh, you know, and uh, what what I wanted to ask you, so when you came from that, that life of like, you know, using drugs and like, whatever else you were doing, robbing and, you know, and, and being a product of the environment. And, you know, like you said, coming from a good family, but like the stuff that you saw growing up. Um, so you're you're coming from that and, and then the stuff with the guards and that probably creates like a rebellious streak in you. Um, and, and then you go on to kind of change your life and mm-hmm. to not that they were wrongs but for want of a better word right the wrongs from you know your past it sounds funny saying that about a kid but like uh you know uh kind of checking the balances or whatever mm. um and uh 
what was it like you spoke there about classism so coming into the Shannon uh, a few years ago what was it like did you experience classism or misogyny or what do you feel you experience more yeah I think like the the funny thing is right it's definitely it's there right because I can it's it's in the policies it's in the contributions like it, it's never necessarily directed straight at me as an individual but my identity is so wrapped up in who I am like my identity is Tala like my identity is killing Arden my, I, I'm I'm I, I don't want to be seen as anything other than than working class because it's more than a financial thing. It's all it's everything. It's your capital, your culture, your language, your understanding on life, the lens in which you see through mm. things. So for me, I experience classism in the contributions that people make sometimes on legislation. And I'm like, they can't even see how class is what they just said is or, you know, or they can't even see the impact that that has on single mothers or they can't, you know, so I can see the classism everywhere in the dialogue. But I don't think people have necessarily like come directly at me with a level of classism or even misogyny. Like the, miso- the thing is, like, I think because I've experienced so much, I kind of just bait through all of that. Like, do you know what I mean? I don't kind of let it stall me or, you know, I call it out or um, I think I've just experienced so much more in my life that that everyday sexism or classism, I kind of just, I'm trudging on through that and going straight for the big stuff, like mm. to change the policy, change the legislation, rather than get too caught up in the everydayness of things. Because I think sometimes if I allowed myself really take in sometimes how people might view me or see me, I might, I might find it very hard to go to work, you know? So, but I was reading a book called The Melancholia of Class by a woman called Cynthia Cruz in America over Christmas. And I, I, she really made me think about how depressing it can be to uh, succeed and kind of, now I'm paraphrasing her stuff, it's me, this is what I took from her writing from my own life, is that I I carry a bit of a, a sense of guilt, I suppose, um, and it drives me to try and change policy because I don't want to be the only one that uh, like can do particular things out my group of friends. I want to try and change the system so it's more ordinary for us all to be doing what we want to be doing and to flourish and be free of violence and be free of, you know, chaotic drug use and that kind of stuff. But I I sometimes don't know where I belong, you know, so I don't, that's not me. Like, I have great friends that I've made throughout politics and throughout academia and all those things, but they're not, I don't feel them in my heart, you know, like I appreciate them and I value what they do and I value their friendship. But there's something about, you know, the way people are saying, I was only discussing this yesterday with someone who was like, people saying, oh, we have to get back to community or we need to make community. And these are people that I don't think understand what community actually is. So it's like finding a load of people in Ireland that just have the same interest as you. That's not a community. That's just a gathering of people or that a cult. like <laughs> a, cult. a cult is probably more like a community <laughs> yeah, than what some of them are talking about. Yeah. So for me, community is like a whole ecosystem. And we rely on each other and we understand each other so in-depthly. Sometimes we hoard each other, but we never abandon each other. And it's that real weird fucked upness that this is the person that actually done X, Y, Z to me when we're younger, but anyone goes near that, right? So we ha- there's something special about working class community that I don't think is replicated uh, all over Ireland, just in any type of community. Like it's something for me that's quite special. So I'm trying to hang on to that, but yet, I'm in the middle somewhere. So there's a bit of a sadness because I don't really know where I belong. So I think that affects me more than people's 
ideas or perceptions of me. So me going back to wearing sovereigns and spike earrings and clown chains, mm. yeah, I, I, re- <laughs> I realise I'm like, I'm on a protest. <laughs> I'm on a one woman protest in there or something. And nobody knows that only me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, I'm so desperate to go. I don't need to assimilate into Leinster House into the clothes or change what I wear or change what I look like or cover my tattoos or wear different types of jewellery. So it's like I go straight down to the stereotypical idea of what I see as 90s working class, you know, to the runners that I wear or, you know, to the music that I listen to and the music that I hire up purposely when I'm driving through the gates and Lenser House <laughs> with the window slightly down. What is it out of interest? <laughs> it's usually like Tupac or, <laughs> yeah. it's usually Tupac or 90s rave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it usually yeah. goes between them. I love Tupac. You know what I, you know what I hate? <laughs> though more than anything music wise I hate like uh, I remember being in a CE scheme and uh, and lads lads always in it with we, we did this kind of art and it was a there was a fast thing in it as well and uh, lads, lads who were doing it uh, they used to always put on these like uh, EDM remixes of Tupac you know like Tupac and Kygo or Tupac and Biggie Small yeah and it was like oh, just listen to Tupac yeah. don't listen to yeah. the remix yeah. you know to, yeah. sorry to derail the no you're grand thing. so it's like so for me and there it's like even if the classism exists I very much wear my class in the most outwardly way purposely Mm. because it's kind of like there's nothing you can do or say that will ever impact on me not wanting to be this do you know what I mean so it's it's so yeah I don't notice the classism much purposely yeah yeah, well, you're, uh, and I've, I've always thought this, you're, I think you might be one of the only politicians who isn't actually a robot. <laughs> <laughs> like, 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 there's nothing here. There's but I ne- can do the robot, yeah, like, tonight Yeah, <laughs> let's do it, yeah. But uh, there's, there's never going to be, you know, I, I, don't, I feel like you're one of the few that there's never going to be a scandal written about you because you're just <laughs> you, you know? I've, I've written them all in the book. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> People like me, out now. <laughs> um, but, oh yeah, that's a camera, but right? that's what I was pointing at. Don't worry, yeah. I'm not seeing things. But, but um, yeah, no, it's it, it really is evident that you are. That sounds like a stupid thing to say. You are you, yeah, and yeah. I'm me, obviously. Yeah. But like, you know what I mean? It's uh, and and there's there's kind of this kind of parliamentary language you hear people use, and there's nothing that. You know, and I know I don't want to. I don't want you to get be bad mouth in politics and get you in trouble here. But like I can, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> like uh, when I hear someone who's real, and you have imagine, imagine how different you you were talking about Leinster House, you know. But imagine how different the Shannon or the Doll would be if everyone who's appointed as a senator or a minister actually has first-hand experience in yeah. what they're doing. Well, that's why we set up the Civil Engagement Group, which is, so in the four Shannon, myself and Alice Mary Higgins, um, Alice Mary came to me and she's like, Lynn, I don't, we didn't want to be part of like the university grouping, which we should have been. And we wanted to kind of do something new and it's on that very basis. So you can only be a member of the Civil Engagement Group if you have real life experience of working in particular sectors. So if you have experience of working actually with people, well then we don't, we don't kind of have it won't be just a career politician that can come in and join our group, even if they were independent. So like say in the foursome with John Dolan, who was uh, the head of the Disability Federation and worked with people in disability. I had um, me then with addiction and homelessness and then obviously community work at Alice Mary, which was community work, older and bolder, and then also uh, uh, gender specific work. And you had Francis Black then with family support and uh, the arts. 
And then you had Colette Kelleher, who was the CEO of the Alzheimer's Foundation and then also worked with COPE and the Simon community and all of that. So it was like a collection of people who actually have worked in the in the real world. Mm. And it's the same this time around now. We've less people because some people didn't get reelected, but we say Eileen Flynn now is part of that group. That's a civil um, engagement group. Is that what yeah. it's called? I had yeah. no idea that was a thing. Yeah. That's it, I feel like... Uh, you know, it, it should be definitely, ha- it should yeah. happen more. Like Yeah, it's- totally. And I think it's, it really shows because like whatever about like us not trusting politicians or having to fight against how things have always been. Um, we have gained a lot of respect actually because I think they know, like we don't only come in with our experience. We read and research every single little thing that we do. We never just kind of speak off cuff. A lot of p- politicians just go, pick something up and go, oh, I have an opinion on that. And they'll go in and share the opinion. And it's kind of like, I don't think we should, I don't think parliament should be developed on opinion. Like, I mean, Mm. I think we should be evidence focused and we should understand the issues. Like I won't go in, like if someone handed me today and said, Lynn, this is a really big issue now, uh, the fodder crisis and whatever I'd go, I'm not going in to speak about fucking fodder crisis. What that's, what's that? I remember someone said fodder crisis beside me and the Shannon and the Tati said fodder crisis. I was like, what's the fucking fodder crisis? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd never Just heard of it. people are bad at spelling in Irish. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, I've never heard of fodder. I don't know what it is. But some people like will go in and talk about say drugs. Mm. So the same way I don't want to speak about like fodder. Frank. <laughs> yeah, Frank yeah. Yeah. It's like me going in and speaking about like... I don't know, something that I just don't know out and about. But some of them go in and speak very confidently on things that they do not know. Yeah. And I just think that's such a bad thing to do. Like, it's yeah. such a bad thing to do. Because people listen to politicians and people actually assume that politicians must know what they're talking about. Mm. I know not everyone does, but a lot of people do. You know, and if you're going to stand in Parliament in those chambers, you'll take it serious enough to always know what you're what you're talking about when you talk about it. Mm. But thankfully, like, I do get the ability, I have gained the ability to work cross-party. So, like, the Spent Convictions Bill, um, Helen McEntee, who's the Justice Minister, has been brilliant. So she ha- she gave me government time to get that bill passed the last stage in the Senate. Like, that's unusual. Mm. So there is people uh, within parties that are willing to go, no, I think what Lynn is doing there is the right thing to do. It's a big change, but let's let's work with her on this. Um, like, Jennifer McNeil, uh is uh, a TD and then Ivana Batchik are TDs and they're from two different parties. They're, they've now put that spent convictions bill into the doll lottery for them to take it through the doll. You know, like that, again, it's like I'm an independent opposition senator and these two um, very capable women in the doll are going, what Lynn is doing is the way forward and we're going to finish off what she started. Mm. So there is room for that. Yeah. You know, and I think women are very good actually yeah. for that because we don't compete with each other. The men are all afraid that they're going to get, oh, that person's going to get on the ticket next. And if I mm. don't come out and say this, I won't get to run for the I next think election. Sometimes it's this, is it? Yeah. <laughs> with the men. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They're all just waving their <laughs> willies around. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> for anyone who's wondering where that came from, I did a hand gesture there. If anyone who's listening, <laughs> don't worry, it wasn't plucked out of the ocean. But, uh, you know, um, I, I, I think, I think what's great about you Lynn is that I'm not I'm not gonna give you too many compliments That's now <laughs> like uh, you know across the board you kind of work with groups that are marginalized you know whether that be like you know women from certain mm-hmm. areas or like just drug addicts or homeless but as well what was interesting was that uh, you do a lot of work with the traveling community mm-hmm. and uh, I, I've always thought about travelers it's kind of like 
and and you know other other communities as well like and it's kind of the last safe haven for people to be discriminatory yeah. or even you know racist yeah. i don't know if yeah. you call it racism yeah really, you would you it's, know, it's, yeah. it's 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 really awful right so like you know if you're from any of our communities that, that like travelers are our peers and our neighbors and our school friends and when i think back now like not even understanding why the the young traveler travelers that were in my class where why they disappeared or where, where are they gone mm. or you know and it's just like even even the, the derogatory language in which we used like I used that word so regularly so regularly and I had no idea first of all that it was intentional it was it was related to the traveller community mm-hmm. I did when I got older and I was like having to I had to work it out my language and it's like some people that I try and tell like no like that isn't really offensive like you're using a term that we use to te- like if someone spits or someone does something that we think is disgusting or we disagree mm. with it we're then using a term that has been associated to uh, insult travellers to describe everything we have discussed with in our day yeah so what the, the hell is the that the term is pikey is it no or- the K one uh, I actually don't know, but I'll just, I'll just, like, oh yes, sorry, yeah, 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 no, I know, yeah, yeah, sorry, we know the one now, yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah. no, I just but was any, like, but any of those terms, one. do you know yeah. what I mean? It's like, they're things we use to insult people. Yeah, it's like junkie for an addict. Yeah, do you know what yeah. I mean? I just have, I've just written a piece um, that I'm working on around the word, um, the J word, right? And the reason I'm giving the initials for them is, like, sometimes you can use them to explain something, right? But for me, it's like, they're words I had to work out of my vocabulary. So I try not to let them back in, mm. you know? And I think if people can be honest that we allow them types of language to seep into our vocabulary and go, it actually doesn't cost me anything to stop using them terms, but it costs the traveler community a lot to keep using them. So like, why can't you just take it upon yourself to try and get that out of your out of your vocabulary? Mm. But like, say with, with, with the J word then, like... So for me, right, when you trace that term back, so I've started uh, reading over loads of articles going back 20 years when when the heroin crisis is especially hit certain communities. There's some articles that use that term 10 times, 12 times. Now, I was very young when I realised that that wasn't a nice term, right? But then you've journalists now, today, in the 40s and 50s, still using it freely to describe people, Mm -hmm. right? Like... To say, like, so you're describing junk, right? So in America, they'd say you're putting junk in your arm, right? So mm. that's, so, and then it's like you add an IE. So now you're making that person is the junk. Yeah. So you're telling a person, now your character, your, that's your characteristic. You are, add IE on the end, you are junky because you put junk in your arm and now the substance is everything you are. Mm. So much so we're going to call you that thing. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, and then some say that it actually originates from uh, people say people getting addicted to Oxycontin and then going off and collecting junk and selling it in America. But I actually don't think that that's the right explanation yeah. of it at all. It's definitely not how we use it. But some of the articles in the, in the there was one article on Ballyferma that I found from 1997 or six. And they used the term six or seven times throughout it. Zombies wrecks my head. How can someone call someone a zombie? Never heard that one, Jesus. A zombie is void of consciousness, right? So if you, like I studied philosophy, right? So you, if you go back into what zombie means, it's, it talks about unconsciousness, the unconscious, the dead, the unliving, right? So you're basically saying, you're basically stripping that individual of all their humanity and telling us that they're zombies void of consciousness, mm. 
right first of all like like I don't understand how any normal sane person would want to call a person who is in active addiction a zombie but right back to the 90s it's there in all the articles and then the land of the living dead or something is what Ballyferma was called in one article and they keep setting off the drug dealers against the drug users and the drug dealers are hanging around the streets and it's like it's like it's like they're, what, it's like they're going from their nice little house into a community and do you think they're watching a fucking film or something do you know what I mean and it's like no sense of this is really sad. There's a lot of sad people here. There's a lot of people that need help and support. It's going in and it's this descriptive tale of what Ballyferm it was. And I, I know I'm only making myself angry reading all these articles. Like, do you know what I mean? <laughs> but I'm trying to, at the minute, because the, the Sittings Assembly on Drugs will hopefully happen this year, um, I'm trying to increase the awareness uh, of people to understand where all this stuff comes from because sometimes when we write articles or we speak in the chamber we might speak about particular individuals and we keep using people's um, trauma and people's human stories as nearly like fucking porn for the middle classes to fucking listen to do you know what I mean it's like wait I tell you about this really traumatic thing that happened to this and we have to keep using people's pain to try and get a point across so what I'm trying to do over the next while is to start writing uh, a lot more just about it from a policy perspective from a mature perspective that we don't have to keep you know going to Jobstown with a camera to show how bad it is and making people feel b fucking worse about their situations. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? But actually have a conversation about narrative, about the social history of policy in Ireland and where it comes from and why it doesn't work, you know, and stop kind of having to expose people's pain mm. just to just to be heard. Like, and, and I don't think I've seen many documentaries over the years you see them on RTE you know which is a semi-state body and they're putting out documentaries about different areas and it's always you know looking at what's going on it's never like what caused it it's like looking at the action it's like you talked about prisoners seeming aggressive you know and like there's it, it's like you never look at what what goes on what what caused it and I was talking to actually again Peter McVary yesterday or last week, sorry, uh, about um about like what happened in Ballymun in the nineties or in the eighties. Um and there was like a surrender grant. I don't know if there was a similar thing in Tala, but uh, there was a surrender grant given in like the eighties, nineteen eighty five or something where uh the government offered to pay people in the flats five it was like the, it was five grand at the time which was like enough to get on the property ladder mm -hmm. and then so all the people who were working left the flats and then poor trans psychiatric unit basically got shut down and they all got dumped into the empty flats and so that and that was around the same time as the heroin epidemic and so it's like it kind of government created like the social problems out there and then we're wondering why people are selling gear outside you know the guard station yeah. out there and it's 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 mad just looking at i think like and i'm you know i've only been doing it like a year and a half looking at sociology but it's definitely changed my uh my perspective on things i was never like i was never really one of these people who would be judgmental over it like and and you know having my own experience but like uh just looking at why things are the way they are has really opened my eyes up a lot. Yeah. And I think it, it should probably be taught in schools. I don't mm. know if it is. Not, um, to, not to any real extent, like, and it does mm. need to happen more. And the same with the traveller community, like, you know, yeah. teaching traveller culture and history in a school in, in schools as part of the curriculum. Like, there should be so much in, in, in our schools on the curriculum. So not in addition to, like, we should look at the books that we teach in the, in the classrooms. We should look at how 
dominated the 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 history books are by like a middle class telling of the history of Ireland not a working class telling like you don't te- you don't see the rebellion from the st- from the side of the working class communities and the tenements you see it from a, a like you know warrior side you know what I mean so it's like what are what's actually in the context of what we teach like I remember in Trinity studying economics and writing an essay and kind of going that was the most right-wing essay I have ever written. I had to scrap the thing. I was like, I remember ringing me socialist economics pal. He's a doctor. And I was like, eh, I don't know what they're teaching me in Trinity, but I'm just out to writing something really bogey. Will you, will, you, will you have a look at it and tell me yeah. what I'm about to do? But that's what I'm saying. So you can, you can, you, you think there's only one way to learn ac- economics. There's not. Do you know what I mean? We're, we're being taught particular curriculums through particular lenses because they've been written by white middle class men for years and years. So even sociology text, political text, there's not a load of working class political writers coming from working class communities, but they've been very much involved with every part of politics in the country, right from, um, you know, right from the war of independence to all like, you know, Nan Joyce running for, for election all them years ago as, as a traveller woman. Like there's so much of it, but they're not in, they're not in our texts. Mm. So we need to not, it's not about even adding additional stuff to teachers it's actually looking at what we teach in our current text and changing the curriculum completely so that it's reflective of a diverse society mm. you know and it will help people understand more um yeah why things are the way they are you know and that that whole thing in bally like we that would have been i'm not sure i have to ask me man how did she get five grand surrender <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> oh yeah that would have been around the same time yeah yeah i just added a new chapter to your story 1985 yeah 1985 is yeah, when yeah. we moved out okay, i think yeah. <laughs> i wanted to grow up in that flat <laughs> you'll, have, you'll have to get a loan over now <laughs> yeah and and you're like you spoke about change in the narrative and you're a huge part of that uh because i haven't really seen any politician like so far and i'm sure there are but i'm you know yeah. that's probably more a reflection on me but i haven't really seen any politicians other than yourself really maybe a couple of others mm. but i don't want to give them a plug yeah. here <laughs> i think but, a uh, lot of them working behind the scenes there is yeah, like and they, yeah. they support i get a lot of support politically in there and being a trinity like you have to remember i'm voted in by the most elite institution in the country yeah and I'm fighting very much for marginalized communities. So I take great uh, honor in the fact that they have voted me in twice when I'm not serving their needs at all. Mm. Like I'm not serving the professional. Uh, like, I mean, I have some bills like the emissions bills and stuff that, but most of my work is mostly on trying to correct policy in relation to inequality. And I'm voted in by some of the, the highest earners in the country, which I think for me is like, it's saying something. I think that's what's special sometimes about the Shannon is I'm not, I'm not influenced. I don't, I'm not being led by a local constituency. I don't hold clinics. I don't do local work. I do mm. constant like drugs nationally, spent convictions nationally, mental health nationally, you know, uh, NDA bills and non-disclosures nationally. So it's like, it's easy for me, I think sometimes to speak out more than some politicians might do, but there is some of them doing a lot kind of in the background and then Eileen Flynn and Alice Mary and Francis from Air Group like Eileen is brilliant um, have you ever came across Eileen? No no. So I Eileen haven't. is a traveller woman uh, from La- she grew- she's grown up in Labra Park and she's a senator alongside us yeah. and she's brilliant uh, she, she's, she's amazing like but it's I just I must actually look into yeah, her now yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah well that's, that's brilliant I mean uh, 
you must get a lot of meaning from being able to change like the narrative even if it's you know whether as big or small as it is and it's you're you're changing it in a big way and is that is that a do you do you get because it's you're you're obviously you come against a lot of uh brick walls as much as people support you yeah what what is it that inspires you to keep going like with all of that stuff my counselor tommy deegan he was always gems for the lm little sayings um one of them is one of them is like so i'm very trusting uh, until i've a reason not to so Mm. i go into everything with trust and then i reassess it as i'm going along if it's not met and the other thing um i always remember tommy saying to me um, and Tommy being in recovery circles himself a long time as an older man and he said I remember him saying to me your job is only done when you're not needed anymore mm. and I was like my job is only done when I can actually stand over and say no that bill has passed no drugs policy has changed and that's the point I want to get to mm. you know you, whether you're working in the addiction sector in NGOs in the homeless sector your goal should always be to do yourself out of a job like if you work to try and help people, you shouldn't be working to maintain your job. You shouldn't be working to maintain the homeless situation. Mm. You shouldn't be working to maintain addiction services. You should be working to a point that you are doing yourself out of a job. And that doesn't happen enough. Yeah, I, I think we're going to have to like invent a machine where we can just clone you and just like <laughs> put a lot of different use in the channel. But, uh, yeah, we'll really... say that till it's election time and I'm like, <laughs> yeah. vote me back well, in. Which one voting for? <laughs> can the real Lynn stand up? Yeah. But um, yeah, thank you so much for thank coming you. on. I really, it's a pleasure to have you on. And uh, we'll finish with a song. I'm joking. <laughs> no, no, come on. You have to no, sing a song now. Joking, I want it. <laughs> Imagine you just like bullied me into singing a song now. <laughs> <laughs> Hit him up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah but well, thanks a million. Fuck <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nice one for coming on, really. It was, it was. Brilliant.